Shelton, the critical thinker at large, welcoming you to another hour of podcasting greatness, I hope. Uh, This week, it is just little old me and the microphone and you. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home this week. I hope that my talk will be uh, useful, informative, educational, and hopefully somewhat entertaining along the way. But what I'm talking about this week is not necessarily something that is, you know, very entertaining, and that is... The subject of grief and loss and, and mourning loss and that sort of thing. This, this subject was sort of forced on me in the last couple of weeks because our dear, dear, wonderful cat, Seven, uh, who I have referred to often lovingly over the years as Seven the Wonder Cat, and our little ball of furry love and joy, and OT7, and all kinds of wonderful names that you guys have given him. Well, he he passed this week. He um, unfortunately, after 15 years old, he um, came down with or developed uh, pancreatic cancer, and he um, and he died. We had to we had to uh, end his suffering, and that's what we did. And it was very sad. It was very mournful. It was the closest experience I can say that I have had to death and dying in that I was in the room when it happened and all of that. And we were able to say our goodbyes. And it was um, perhaps at once um, a, a tragic and sad and mournful event. And at the same time, a recognition of the beauty and and wonder that was his life and the and the sort of perfection of the relationship that my wife and he had. Uh, she she uh, got him, adopted him when he was very, very, very young, still just a little tiny, tiny kitten. And uh, back when she was uh, 24 years old, and uh, and that was 15 years ago. And she, of course, um, you know, loved him to you know to to a fault, and <laughs> not to a fault really. Actually, she just kind of loved him. And um, anyway, and then he and then he passed. And over the last five years that I have known him, of course, I've developed a very close relationship with him too. And you know, people can think that one goes too far with pets, and there has been expressions of. Of uh, of people going, why are you? What's such a big deal? That's no, that's not a problem. It's just a cat. What's the problem? You know, you're you're too attached. You're the problem. You have an issue of some kind because you have formed this emotional attachment with this other living creature. How dare you? You are just there's that's what's wrong with you, right? It's sort of the analysis from certain low IQ people who don't seem to share in the concept of empathy and compassion. <laughs> so I I don't really have kind words for people who try to rain on or or spoil a person's grieving process with their own arbitrary ideas about how it really shouldn't matter at all anyway and what's your problem that's not constructive or helpful or useful and if you're one of those people who says that to other people you really need to stop doing that because it only makes you look like the asshole that you are. So I, I'm I'm being perhaps overly sensitive about that kind of thing. But and fortunately, uh, Mel and I have not received you know really much of any of that. But we have seen it expressed in other support groups and by other people. And it's very very unfortunate when that happens. Whether you're talking about a person, an animal, an object, whatever it is that is the subject of a person's grief and loss, it's not for you to tell them how they should feel about it based on your point of view. Um, This is one of those times where projection and where trying to empathize with people can backfire enormously if uh, you really don't take the time to understand where that person is coming from as opposed to how you think they should be thinking about it. Uh, This is just one of those kinds of things. So I thought I would comment on that, kind of get some of the negative out of the way right away just because it was on my mind and I'm kind of that guy. But let's go ahead and now talk about something much, much, much more important to this whole thing and actually leads into a much bigger topic that I wanted to get into this week. Because while the loss of Seven was devastating and very, very hard and something we're still getting over, the learning process about the learning about the grieving process, I should say, brought me to a new look at the five stages of grief. And this is um, you might have heard something about this or heard of this. 
1969, I'm, I'm reading from an article um, from SciComm.net um, written by Christina Gregory, who was a PhD, doing an examination of the Kluber-Ross model. And I thought her article here gives some great breakdown of this, so I was going to read from sections of it as I go along and look at this. And the reason I wanted to bring this up and talk about it this week is not just because of I'm fresh in the middle of, you know, grieving, uh, but because this shed an enormous amount of light on my Scientology cult experience and my recovery from that experience. And so if we can use a grieving process to learn and grow and, and, and know more about a whole other thing, then isn't that good? Isn't that fortunate? And isn't that something we should do and, and maybe talk about? And that's why I'm doing this podcast this week so, and talking specifically about this Kubler-Ross grief cycle. Now, there's a lot of um, misunderstandings and miscommunications about this, about these five stages of grief. So let's be first clear and clear up any sort of misconceptions about it. Um, this was first introduced, uh, her five-stage grief model, in her book on death and dying. That is the book that she wrote back in 69, working with terminally ill patients. And there has been criticism uh, leveled against this five-stage model because not everybody experiences these five stages, nor do they experience them in the sequence that they are given, nor do they, or they might experience only some of them. And that's okay. <laughs> The whole point of uh, social science and, and social psychology and, and that kind of thing is to look at group behavior, to look at the, the majority behavior and codify it, talk about it, examine it, analyze it. That doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you if you don't fit into that model. And it doesn't mean that the model is wrong if you don't fit into it. There are very, very few things in social sciences that claim to be universally applicable across the boards to everybody under all circumstances. It is very, very difficult in social sciences to make any claim like that. The, the variety of human experiences simply pushes back against any kind of universal model of behavior or thinking or belief. And so you have to really know when you're going into this that you're talking about behavior that's demonstrated by a majority of people, not by everybody. And if you don't happen to fall into that majority, that's okay. Maybe there are parts of this that will still speak to your experience and maybe not. Either way, it's not a matter of a good, bad value judgment. It's a matter of trying to think about well, what do most people go through and how can we look at this, analyze it, and maybe break it down so that more people can go through this process from a um, knowledgeable, you know, even experiential sort of point of view, know what's going to come, have a little prediction, have a little ability to deal with it, you know, more emotionally, uh, soundly, I guess I could say. Right. These are the, this is why we study this stuff. I mean, why, why, why do all this? It's to make it easier to go through the process. And if that, if this work and if this podcast does that or accomplishes that purpose, that's all we're trying to do. This is not a diagnostic action. This is not a matter of trying to tell you what's wrong with you if you do or don't experience these things. Okay, so that being clear, the basis of a lot of the criticism of this model has been around that. Is, oh, well, I didn't experience that, or I didn't go through that, or I don't have to go through it that way. No, of course you don't. But if you do, maybe this can help clarify the process. And I was quite surprised to look it up sort of newly as the last time I looked at it was a couple of years ago. And I haven't really paid a lot of attention to this, but I found it to be not only useful for my understanding of the process of grief that I'm going through with seven, but also to my entire cult recovery experience. And I thought, you know, I started this channel and I started this podcast. I started all the work that I'm doing speaking publicly in an effort to try to educate and help people see the process of recovery that I've gone through. And maybe through that, your own recovery or your own life can be eased or made, you know, more clear as a result. So, you know, I, I so I thought, well, let me take a look at these stages. Now we've got five stages to grief. Uh, the first one being denial. 
Now, there's a write-up here from the doctor about some of these things. And I'm going to read briefly from little, I'm going to read bits from her write-up on this because it helps clarify what we're talking about. Denial is kind of a big word. It has a lot of lang- a lot of loaded language to it. Denial is the stage, she says. Denial is the stage that can initially help you survive the loss. You might think life makes no sense, has no meaning, and is too overwhelming. You start to deny the news and, in effect, go numb. It's common in this stage to wonder how life will go on in this different state. You are in a state of shock because life as you once knew it has changed in an instant. And now my, now my contribution to this, of course, is to say, yeah, <laughs> you know, the first thing we want to do when we hear bad news is go, no, that's not true. That can't be right. Nope, nope, nope. Deny, deny, deny. That's denial, right? Of course it is. It's a perfectly natural response. It's, it's kind of uh, built into us because why would we want to accept something that would so radically change the things on which we base or anchor, you know, the most important aspects of our life? And in a way, you could look at the word grief as a word that expresses the, the, the emotional responses to forced change, an, an enforced reality that you don't want, never wanted, never wanted to have anything to do with, but life's not giving you a choice. There is no option here for you to opt out of this particular agreement and death and dying are one of those things, and we push it off. We talk. We don't talk about it. We deny its existence. We we use flowery euphemisms and phrases, and we come up with pleasant ideas to deny the reality of the fact that we're not going to be around at a certain point in time. And this is a very very hard fact to deal with. It is one that I have struggled with for years after leaving Scientology, years and years. I have, de- I have been dealing with this, this denial, this, this effort to deny, because in Scientology, I came from a belief set where you are an immortal spiritual being who has lived a near infinite time in the past and will continue to live infinitely into the future. Time has no concept for a Thetan. A Thetan just lives. And this, and it simply exists, and it exists beyond the reality of the physical universe, even. And this was something that I thought was true. I accepted this. I embraced it. In fact, I needed this to be true in order for me to navigate the difficulties of life. Every time I got on a plane, I dealt with my fear of flying and my fear of death by telling myself, like a mantra, that it would really suck if I died and lost this body. But I'd just come back, you know, in another body, and it would all be all right. And I'm not going to end, and I'm not going to stop living, and I'm not going to stop existing. Because that idea was just so foreign to my uh, way of thinking and my desires that I didn't, couldn't entertain it. And so I would cling to this belief that I am an immortal spiritual being in order to help me navigate those fears and those difficulties. And it wasn't, of course, just flying or my fear of flying. It was, it was all kinds of things that, I, that this would help me navigate. Anytime that I was under any threat, it wasn't really a threat, see. I got to reframe or redefine what a threat is to me because of this belief I had that I'm a spiritual, immortal spiritual being. And so I can't be killed. You can't touch me. You can't really affect me in any way. And ha, ha, ha. So I could use this as a defense mechanism. I could use it as a, as a denial mechanism. I could use it as a, as, a, as a mechanism of ignorance to keep myself stupid on certain topics like science and neuroscience and biology and the facts of life that bodies die. And when bodies are over, that's it. And that is, that is what I believe to be true after a great, great, great deal of introspection and examination and, and reading and writing and talking on the topic of death. I, I truly believe that when we die, that's it. We're, we're over. And, uh, and we're just as aware as we were before we were born. That's, that's pretty much the way I've been able to give myself some comfort with that. But I am, I am going way beyond uh, the stages here and talking about just denial right now. But I'm really just trying to comment on the strength of denial and the, and the, and the, the, the usefulness, the utility 
of denial. We castigate it. We talk about it in, in, in pejorative terms. We say denial is bad. You're in denial. You just, we just won't face facts. As the, you know, we make it an accusation <laughs> so often, which, like so many other things, we are, you know, we are prone to do that, uh, despite the fact that uh, it is really the, the worst possible thing we could be doing to each other, but we do it anyway. So denial does have a survival factor. There is a reason why we do that. And it's because, according to this and, and thinking about it this way, um, one reason we engage in denial is because we just can't psychologically deal with that massive of a change that quickly. It's too much, too fast. And when you talk about shock, that's what you're talking about. Too much, too fast. Uh, too much change. And, um, and so you have to kind of, your mind has to let you sort of ease into it. And of course, part of easing into it is having to get to a point where you can accept it. Well, acceptance is the last stage. So what happens in between? Well, after you're denying it, once the denial and shock starts to fade, the start of the healing process begins. At this point, those feelings that you were once suppressing are coming to the surface. And here we have anger as your next stage. Now, I'll relate this to my Scientology experience because I... My denial stage, I guess you could say, was very short-lived with Scientology. I accepted the, um, well, it was short-lived and it was long-lived. <laughs> I mean, as I have mentioned before, when I've talked about how the seeds worked that, that were planted over the years that, or the events that occurred to me that, that created seeds of doubt in my faith in Scientology, I, um, that was a 10-year process. So perhaps, in a way, denial was the longest stage of my process of leaving and, and processing the, the, the leaving, because I started mentally leaving Scientology 10 years before I actually physically exited. Um, and I've described that, that whole San Diego project and the betrayal and the, and the loss of that and the, and the feeling of not being heard, not being listened to, and being relegated to... Uh, you know, the bin of unimportance and uh, even undesirability as a member of Scientology, as a member of the Sea Org and management at the time where I was working, I, um, I, I had a very strong, you know, whoa, pushback uh, moment with the, with the church. And, and it really opened my eyes to the fact that there was hypocrisy and that there was, uh, um, you know, logos and slogans and mantras rather than actual inspired truth and and, and common cause, you know, we were just repeating mantras to each other and pumping ourselves up with, with pithy sayings rather than actual truth. And, and once I started seeing that, you know, it becomes awful hard to unsee it, but our minds are quite good at doing that. And that's that denial stage. I, I wanted to deny that Scientology was really what I was seeing. And I did deny it. I, I, I buried that. I suppressed the hell out of those thoughts. Um, because I couldn't go there. This was my life's work. You know, I'd signed a billion-year contract of commitment to Scientology. I couldn't be running around as a with a little like a little poison pill with all these doubts and reservations about it. So I had to I had to squash that, and uh, and so you know, ten years of of squashing that until I finally did physically get myself out and stopped denying it to that degree, and then and then went down the internet rabbit hole, and that is when I reached the stage of anger. Uh, anger obviously occurred at other times. I was quite angry at times when I was on the RPF. I was quite angry at other times when I was dealing with people. But I wouldn't say I was in the stage of anger until after I was physically out of Scientology, went down the internet rabbit hole, got all the facts about L. Ron Hubbard, David Miscavige, Scientology, the lies, the, the bullshit war record, the bullshit college record, the bullshit claims, the ties to the occult and Aleister Crowley and Jack Parsons. I mean, this whole picture starts developing once I got out of Scientology, and that was a very, very different picture of what I thought Scientology was really all about when I was a member of it. So getting out and finding out that it actually betrayed every truth that I thought was real, that, that, that all of it had been a lie, of course, 
my anger was palpable. I was furious. And I remained furious for quite a while. I didn't suppress the anger so much as I directed the anger. And you guys have seen very, very, very little of that anger <laughs> because on purpose. That was, that was a premeditated decision on my part because I didn't want to put myself out publicly as an angry guy railing against destructive cults and what they did to me. I didn't, I didn't think that would be effective. I didn't think it would be useful. Um, and I didn't think it would be as an informative as if I calmed down, chilled out, and just talked facts. And that's how you've seen me express myself through my channel. You haven't seen the behind the scenes of, you know, the screaming, the yelling, the raging, the, the, there's there it is it has happened it, it it did occur and and it's and it's gone in cycles and and that sort of thing right but that anger has very very much been there now when we look at this description of anger of the anger stage from Dr. Christina Gregory here what she says is once you start to live in quote unquote actual reality again and not in preferable reality anger might start to set in <laughs> Uh, this is a common stage to think, why me? And life's not fair. You might look to blame others for the cause of your grief and also may redirect your anger to close friends and family. You find it incomprehensible of how something like this could happen to you. Uh, and even those who are strong in faith might start to question their belief in God. Where is God in all of this, right? This kind of thing. We've seen this. We've all seen this. We've all probably, to one degree or another, have experienced this. My anger was not against God. My anger was against L. Ron Hubbard, of course. And I think I correctly channeled and targeted my anger towards the actual source of it. And I did not, um, you know, try to lash out at uh, family or friends, although uh, I have certainly, you know, owned the fact that I have used harsh words and harsh language and uh, have, not, have not expressed myself as well as I could have um, at certain times when I've gotten myself a bit riled up over things. So that anger is always sort of there. Um, I give myself the right to be angry. I don't think anger is an inherently negative or misemotion, as they say in Scientology. I don't think there's something wrong with being angry. However, I do think that anger can be used wrongly, <laughs> put it that way. Um, so she says here, it will dissipate. And the more you truly feel the anger, the more quickly it will dissipate and the more quickly you will heal. And on that note, I want to say that um, that anger that I felt that I was directing towards Scientology through my videos and through the work that I was doing, um, I, I do have to admit, actually, I just said I sort of, you know, was, was not denying it, but I, I, it took me a long time not knowing this information to actually understand what was going on with me. I mean, I was just sort of an, a tumult of emotional experiences for quite a while after finding out about Scientology's, you know, awfulness. And, um... And so I didn't really have this to frame what was going on. And so so I think I did suppress some of that anger to a degree, didn't really understand or acknowledge the validity of some of that anger. I was still thinking an awful lot in the early years of getting out of Scientology. I was still thinking a lot with Hubbard's you know, nonsense about emotions. It took a long time to get educated about what emotions are and how they are expressed and what's healthy versus unhealthy and, and what, what's, what's actually going on in the body when it comes to emotions. Because basically, as I think about them, emotions are pretty much thoughts that your whole body experiences. <laughs> That's how I like to describe them. Is you can feel, you know, you can feel the thought in your toes, in your stomach, in your gut, whatever. Um, you know, other thoughts you have, you don't feel them all throughout your body, but emotions, you do. And uh, and anger is can be quite a powerful emotional experience. So um, so anger is a thing that um, it's it's a thing. It's something to grasp onto, a natural step in healing. And and once I did the re I, the reason I'm talking about 
this or saying it took me a few years to get there to realize that anger is a thing and that it's actually part of the process and it's something you should let yourself experience. Um, once I once I did learn about that, it really helped clarify a number of things, and it also helped push away a lot of Hubbard's nonsense about it, because in Scientology, anger, grief, apathy, fear, these are called misemotion. You're not supposed to feel these things, and if you do, you're supposed to suppress the shit out of it. You're not, you know, you're supposed to push it away and not let yourself feel those things. Uh, Scientology has a very unhealthy uh, sort of dogma connected to emotions where you know if you're not happy all the time or feeling wonderful all the time uh that's on you and and you got to knock that off you're the one who's supposed to be at cause over your own emotional state and you're the one who's in the driver's seat as to what emotion you're going to feel at any minute of the day well that's just simply not true that's not reality emotions overtake us all the time but l ron hubbard tried to reframe it in a different light to put you in the driver's seat regarding your emotions. And uh, not only was he wrong, but he was destructively wrong because you can actually suppress your emotional life and retard your emotional experience and actually cause yourself psychological distress and trauma by doing that. So it's a pretty serious thing. Um, emotions are not something that you should just run, allow to, you know, run riot over you. You, you, you always have a degree of responsibility and control over your own actions. But uh, let's be clear, we are emotional creatures. <laughs> all right. And in fact, that's what this whole thing is all about in terms of these five stages is the emotional steps you kind of go through in dealing with this massive traumatic change that's occurring to you that we call the grief process or the recovery process. Um, so after anger comes bargaining. And this is an interesting step, actually, because I lived here for a long time in doing my channel and my work. Um, bargaining is when something bad happens. Have you ever caught yourself making a deal with God? This is, again, the doctor writing here. Please, God, if you heal my husband, I will strive to be the best wife I can ever be and never complain again. You know, we see this in children. Uh, this is bargaining. In, this, in a way, this stage is false hope. You might falsely make yourself believe that you can avoid the grief through a type of negotiation. Now, for me, this had to do with uh, speaking out. And my, um, my speaking out stage, I guess you could say, has gone on for quite a number of years. Um, here under the chart that they give under this, under the bargaining step, it lists a few sub-steps, struggling to find meaning, reaching out to others, and telling one's story. And of course, telling my story is something, is an activity that I've been engaged in and deconstructing Scientology as a philosophy, as an authoritarian control system has also been part of telling my story. Uh, breaking down and criticizing the various aspects of it has been part of telling my story. And because it's all been from my experience and, my, and, and has been informed by my experience of Scientology. If you just read what L. Ron Hubbard wrote, you might get a very weird and very different idea of what Scientology is all about than the lived experience of it. And, and that's what I have to offer in talking about it is the lived experience of it, not just what the written word says and the culture of Scientology and the rules and the language and the, you know, all of that stuff factors into all of that. So my bargaining process has been to a great degree explaining all of this to you guys <laughs> and sort of holding off or pushing back by doing that kind of in a way pushing off some depression and some anxiety and some harsh realities about it. And one of those harsh realities was my own contribution to that picture. In other words, my own responsibilities for my actions and what I did to other people and starting to examine much more closely the relationship between the victim and the victimizer and the fact that those roles change in a destructive cult. And we both, we, the membership wears both 
or, or fulfills both roles at different times, especially if you start working for the cult or working for the high control group, then you're victimizing other people almost by definition. And yet there you are being a victim at the same time. How does that work? Well, I've been having to figure that out, break that down, talk about that, and in so doing, realize that my own responsibilities for victimizing others is a part of this picture, and one that I had to take a good hard look at and kind of stop denying. And that was, again, part of that bargaining process of like, oh, gosh, really? Oh, I guess it is true. I did. I had something to do with this, too. Ooh, okay. You know, and having to deal with that. Um, that's, again, I know that's kind of part of that process. And that led me straight into the next stage, depression. <laughs> depression is a commonly accepted form of grief. In fact, most people associate depression immediately with grief as it is a quote-unquote present emotion. Uh, it represents the emptiness we feel when we are living in reality and realize the person or situation is gone or over. In this stage, you might withdraw from life, feel numb, live in a fog, and not want to get out of bed. The world might seem too much and too overwhelming for you to face. You don't want to be around others, don't feel like talking, and experience feelings of hopelessness. You might even experience suicidal thoughts, thinking, what's the point of going on? All of the above has happened to me within the last year. And I would say that all of that is part of opening the floodgates to feeling what I needed to feel and going through what I needed to go through in order to process that depression and, and kind of live through it. Because there is another side to it. And I didn't know that when I was going through it. Uh, but I hoped. And I got some counseling, which I'm still doing. And I got more education. I got into my... In fact, I guess you could say, actually, now that I sort of think about the timing of this, in many, many ways, my university education prompted this and sort of, in a way, pushed me into this stage, not because it was trying to, not because, not, not because of any ill intent or malice or anything like this, not at all what I'm saying, on the part of the people who put on the program that I'm doing or any of the other students or anybody, nobody intended for me to become depressed <laughs> while learning about destructive cults and high control groups and coercive control. But that is kind of what happened. And and I can only sit here talking about it right now because I feel I have progressed through that and hindsight allows me to look at it and kind of see it for what it was. At the time I was going through it, it was incredibly difficult, very, very confusing, very upsetting, and of course, depressing. Uh, there was a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression connected with that. Uh, you guys saw and heard various bits and pieces of it probably uh, over this time. You've seen me talk more uh, clearly, more, I, I think, more intelligently about the subject matter. I use, and that, well, all that really means is I get to use bigger words, <laughs> but also some bigger concepts being considered when it comes to high control groups and, co and coercive control. So you've seen some of that, but also behind the scenes, maybe you've also noticed, um, you know, some emotional roller coastering, some ups and downs, and some real introspective kind of examinations of what am I trying to do? Where is my life going? What am I doing with this? This feels useless. This feels hopeless. I don't feel like I'm making any change. I don't feel like I'm creating any effects out there. I don't feel like I'm doing the job that I want to be doing, or I'm not creating as big of an impact as I want to be creating. And so what's the point? You know, why should I even bother? These are all things I've said out loud many times, uh, you know, fairly recently and have uh, and really meant it. You know, really felt it, really was in it. And, and, and now I can see kind of getting past that, getting through that, how necessary that was, how, how it was really important that I examine, well, what am I doing? I, I, I make podcasts, I make videos, I've written a book, I write papers, I'm going to write a lot more if I, if I have my, my druthers. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to publish academically and I'm going to I'm going to do some work. Uh, 
And and that's that's more of, you know, the resolutions that I've been making in hitting this sort of acceptance stage. And um, but but seeing the necessity of the grief and the grieving process and the and the depression was a little bit of an eye, eye a light bulb moment for me. It was a little eye opening. Like, oh, my God, I had to go through this to get to the other side where I can have now a much more accurate perspective of me and my work. I'm not saving the world. I'm not even saving my city <laughs> or my country or my town or, or my neighborhood. It's not about that because we can't as individuals really do a whole lot about that. You know, there, there, there's too many people with too many issues across too many spectrums to be able to think that any one of us is going to impact all the rest of us in any really seriously significant way that's going to have lasting staying power for decades or centuries. I mean, that, that reality doesn't exist except in our heads and mostly in the heads of young people. And good on them. It's a stage of development. It's a part of life, taking on the world and challenging its, um, you know, so somewhat uh, stultified or outmoded or nonsensical ideas. That's the job of youth. That's what the that's what the youthful generation does. Is it pushes back against the value sets of the older more staid, more conservative, you know, sort of generations. And that's the push-pull yin-yang of progress through, you know, through the evolution of our societies. So I can, I, I can see that whole thing a lot more clearly now than I did when I was a Scientologist, when I was convincing myself on a daily basis that my actions mattered, that I was saving the world, and that what we were doing as a little group of Scientologists was more important and more impactful than anything anyone else was doing anywhere in the universe. And that's pretty delusional state of mind to be in. Uh, but it was exactly precisely where my head was at for a lot of years. And it was just part of that denial process, really. I mean, in, in, in some ways, you could look at it that way. It was, there was more to it than that. But just in terms of framing it in terms of these five stages, you know, yeah, an awful lot of denial going on there. And, and coming to now through that depression and, and seeing a more realistic idea of who I am and what I can do has really helped me focus on what my future holds or should hold or what direction I might want to go in. And, and here are the subtitles or subsets to the stage of acceptance. Exploring options, new plan in place, and moving on. Okay. Um, the last stage. Now, here's what uh, the good doctor here, uh, Christina Gregory, again, has to say about the acceptance stage. She writes, the last stage of grief identified by Kubler-Ross is acceptance. Not in the sense that it's okay my husband died. Rather, my husband died, but I'm going to be okay. In this stage, your emotions may begin to stabilize. You re-enter reality. You come to terms with the fact that the new reality is that your partner is never coming back or that you are going to succumb to your illness and die soon. And you're okay with that. It's not a good thing, quote unquote, but it's something you can live with. It is definitely a time of adjustment and readjustment. There are good days, there are bad days, and then there are good days again in this stage. It does not mean you'll never have another bad day where you are uncontrollably sad. But the good days tend to outnumber the bad days. In this stage, you may lift from your fog, you start to engage with friends again, and might even make new relationships as time goes on. Now, for me, this all has been true. I have, I have actually, for the first time in years, only recently started reconsidering the idea of membership in groups and taking part in social activities as an active participant. I have had my flippers pulled in 
for a very long time. You have seen me speak at conferences or go out and do talks. You know, I have a YouTube channel. So what am I talking about? I'm pulling my flippers in. But what I mean is I'm in my house. I'm in my apartment doing this work. I don't go out much. I don't go out and see a lot of people a lot. I'm not a really heavily social person. I have a small circle of very close friends who I love to death and uh, have very close ties with. And I, and I very, very, very much value and cherish those friendships that I've made over these years. And they're great, great people. So it's not that there's nothing there, but when I think about what could be and, and maybe what I would like to have happen now I see this stage of development or the stage of grief um, playing out in my life now. And, and it's just sort of an organic process. I didn't read this and then go, oh, here's what I need to do. It's this is what was happening. And then I read this and went, oh, yeah, that fits exactly. And that's kind of what's been happening. And I thought that that was uh, interesting enough to comment on that, that you can get through these depressive states, not to a point where it's never going to happen again, but it gets less and less and less. And the way that you do that is you got to kind of have to embrace the reality of it. If there is one thing that I cannot ever uh, credibly be blamed with or blamed of, it is a lack of introspection. <laughs> I think all the time. And I think about thinking all the time. And I think about personality. I think about the psychological issues of identity and, and personality and consciousness and who are we and what is this all about and all of those kind of deep questions. These are questions that are on my mind all the time. So, uh, so thinking on those topics and thinking about the experiences I've been having and embracing the reality that I would, you know, I would rather believe true things than false things. I would rather believe in an uncomfortable truth than a pleasing lie. Um, if, you know, if given a choice, I'll take the truth a hundred percent of the time, however difficult it might be to deal with. And that doesn't mean that I have a, you know, stranglehold on the truth or I've got the truth. I have what I think is the truth. But, you know, the good thing about uh, what critical thinking has taught me is that I have to always be willing to change my mind, be open to new ideas and new ways of looking at things. But by doing that and by being that way and processing my grief that way and, and going through the recovery process of my grief of losing Scientology, losing that belief set, losing that ideal for human beings losing this idea that 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 you know that, that that we are immortal spiritual beings losing this idea that immortality is a reality i mean losing these were were a big deal there were tons and tons of other ideas in scientology that i lost that i thought we could make the world a better place through auditing and through training and through this and that and i thought it was going to be very easy and it was just a matter of getting it done that 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 get her done you know kind of an approach the world is immensely, immensely more complicated than that. And, and solving the world's problems is uh, logarithmically, exponentially more difficult than the simple Simon approach that Scientology takes. I had to, I had to grapple with and deal with that reality because I embraced the simple Simon reality. I, I needed that to be true. And the most difficult part of this process of leaving Scientology has been giving that up. I, I, I mean, I've, real, I've gone on and on about it here. You know, between saving the world and being and living immortally, you know, these were big, big deals for me. And so, but they're not real and they never were. And so kind of coming to terms with that is, is the recovery process for me. And, uh, and I've now come to a place where I really feel that I have accepted that and that, that this new reality that it's taken me nine years to kind of achieve is not an end. It's really just another beginning, but it is a new beginning now. And, it's not, and it is an end to what has come before. And I'm very happy about that. And I, and I didn't see anything like this ever possible years ago when I said, I think I'll be recovering from Scientology for the rest of my life. 
I think the recovery process is something that will take the rest of my life. These are, these are words that I have said in the past. And to a degree, those are true, but not necessarily in the way that I said them at that time, where I thought I was never going to get over this. There was never going to be a getting over Scientology. Well, I was wrong about that. I, I do feel emotionally over Scientology. Where I get riled up now is when I see people like new religious movement scholars, media pundits, cultists, speak out publicly and openly in favor of these high control groups, not just Scientology, but the Jehovah's Witnesses, 12 tribes, Mormons, um, Christian science, and you know the, the, the Gothard nonsense, the Christian cults, or the non-religious cults even. When I now see people advocating for these groups, and they do have their advocates, and they, this is in academia, this is in the media, this is in professional circles, that's what pisses me off now. But that's a separate thing from my own personal recovery from and acceptance of the reality of real life. The, the, the recovery from Scientology was its own thing that's not that. And, and, you know, me, that's more of me getting riled up over the injustice of people in positions of power and knowledge and influence who are basically being the bad guys, the guys in the black hats, the guys who are standing up for the bad guys. That really pisses me off. And that's my, that's the fight that I'm fighting now. That's the fight that I'm moving into fighting. And, and if this degree and this work that I'm doing now has any sort of direction that it's giving me, it's that direction. Because I kind of like to fight. <laughs> and, um, and I have to admit that about myself, you know. But, and, I, and I get pretty self-righteous sometimes, too. I admit that. Um, but I do my best to temper my self-righteousness against the facts and evidence and, and reason. And if I can be shown to be wrong, um, uh, you know, I'll deal with that and I'll take that and I will, I will change my mind. But on this point of high control groups like Scientology uh, and the abusive practices they engage in, I'm not wrong about that, I, you know, and I know you guys know that. And so I want to push back against these people who, you know, who get paid by Scientology, who get paid by the Jehovah's Witnesses, who get paid by the Moonies to go into courtrooms and testify for them and go to the governments like the United States government and get the government to issue statements in favor of destructive cults, which they have done. Um, this is not okay. This is wrong. This is just morally and intellectually wrong on every level because it's enabling abuse and abuse is wrong. And so that's my fight now. And um, this isn't some big, huge announcement. I mean, this has been going on. This is, I've been leading up to this for, for quite some time. And it's not that I'm never going to talk about Scientology again. That's not, that's not at all what, what I'm saying. But, but being now in a position where I'm publicly stating, hey, look, I'm kind of past the Scientology nonsense in my own brain. And I'm kind of not really thinking with Scientology anymore. And I don't really care about the fact that Scientology is a thing. Like, it's not a personal affront to me now. It's a problem that has to be solved. You know, I, I don't even necessarily want all of Scientology to just be destroyed. It's just the abuses need to stop. The abusive nature of Scientology and all these other destructive cults or high-control groups, that's the target. That's what we need to deal with. Because crazy belief sets, nonsensical ideas about Xenu and intergalactic wars and invader forces and thetans and engrams and, and implants and, you know, body thetans. I mean, th this crazy, nonsensical, completely batshit crazy horseshit nonsense. It, that's just the flavor of the month, <laughs> you know? <laughs> If you break down the belief set of any major religion or, you know, any sort of major belief set, you're going to find so many logic holes, logical fallacies, nonsense, and just, just unbelievable ridiculousness. 
that that's not really the point. The ridiculousness, the craziness, the, the, the willingness of people to embrace really stupid ideas or factually improbable or improvable ideas, that's never, ever, ever going to stop. Ever. Because human beings are what we are. So you can't really fight that. That's not the right fight, right? The fight is let's at least stop getting abuse. Let's stop getting physical, psychological, financial rape and torment from these belief sets. Let's at least regulate that much because we can't regulate belief, but we can regulate behavior. And when belief informs bad behavior, then we have a right to critique those beliefs and analyze those beliefs and look into those beliefs and wonder about and talk about and debate those beliefs because of the you know negative consequences in the real world because of those beliefs. And if you see me ridiculing or pushing back on belief sets or ideas, that's the only reason why, is it's in the direction of trying to reduce the amount of abuse that comes from those beliefs. I'm not railing against belief just for the sake of railing against belief. So that's kind of the direction that I feel my acceptance stage has kind of gotten me going in now. And I wanted to comment publicly about that. I wanted to talk about this in the framework of the stages of grief, because that's kind of how I look back at the last nine years of my life and see what's been going on with it. And I feel now that I am in a place that is far, far better mentally, you know, uh, spiritually, I guess you could say, uh, than I ever was nine years ago when I first got out of Scientology. I, I didn't even know, I, I had no concept nine years ago that this was a place I could even get to. And here I am. So... I thought I'd share that all with you guys. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me blather on like this about these stages of grief. I will put a link to this article that I've been reading from so you guys can check it out in full, and I recommend you do so. It's very informative and very interesting to understand what these stages of grief are all about in this Kubler-Ross model. Um, I found it very useful to me, and I hope that uh, maybe some of what I've discussed here, if you are a former cult member or if you are somebody who has survived uh, some kind of bizarre belief set or abusive situation or something, maybe some of what I talked about here might have been of some assistance or some help or some clarification. If so, I really hope so. That was the purpose of me sitting here behind the microphone today. All right, guys. Again, thanks for coming around and inviting me into your home this week. I really appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.